Well, this is our final week in the section of Exodus known as the Book of Ordinances, and it's the grouping of, of case laws that are an outworking of the Ten Commandments that Israel agreed to as part of her covenant with God. And this week we come to a part of the law that is uh, both familiar and strange at the same time. So on the one hand, most Christians have some knowledge of the Sabbath, even if many Christians don't often practice it or place much importance on the Sabbath themselves. On the other hand, the festivals, or really the high feast days that are mentioned in this passage, are very strange to us, especially as modern Christians tend to look down on them or be dismissive of them as archaic or backwards or obsolete under Christ. And and now some of that is justified. I mean, these three feast days that we're going to look at today are now uh, contained in the one feast of the Lord's Supper, but even so... You know, many Christians think we have moved beyond the need for rituals, which is a very kind of modern, contemporary way of thinking about what a human is. In fact, in the absence of rituals or feast days, Christians typically grab hold of pagan ones. And it's why, you know, July 4th or Mother's Day or Valentine's Day has taken on such significance, you know, for so many Christians and why those so-called Holy days, you know, holidays, are sometimes treated with such reverence. That said, our our passage this morning is Exodus 23. We're going to pick it up with verse 10 and go through verse 19. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, this word seems strange and odd to us, in particular that last command in that last verse. Um, So I pray for us that this is your word and that it would be clear to us and it would be useful for us and we would learn deeply from what you had to teach your people some 3,000 years ago and how it it does apply to us and how it teaches us now. So to that end, I pray I would be clear. I pray I would speak well. I pray that I would help make your word clear so that we might see how good, how righteous, and how kind you are. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as you look at verses 10 through 19, 
you can see that these case laws are split between laws on the Sabbath, which is verses 10 through 14, and then laws on these feast days, that's verses 14 through 19. And all of these laws together are grounded in and they flow out of the fourth commandment on the Sabbath, even as they also touch on and assume the first three commandments on worship as well. So what the fourth commandment is after, and we talked about this earlier in the year in our series on the Ten Commandments when we came to it, uh, what the fourth commandment is after is marking time or structuring time in light of God. So clearly there's already a God-given built-in way of keeping time that first shows up in Genesis 1. So on the fourth day of creation, God creates the great lights to serve as markers of signs and seasons and days and years. So within his creation, God set the boundaries and the limits and the constraints for how we exist as time-bound creatures, and it's inescapable for us. You know, our bodies bear the marks of time. Our, our hearts mark beats, right, in rhythm of time, and our bodies break down or even die when they try to go against God's structure of time. You know, we can't think or, or conceive of existence outside of the constraint of time. It's why people instinctively ask, well, what was God doing before he created the world? Because to us, it seems like he was just hanging out, you know, in eternal nothingness, which sounds awful to us because we can't conceive of what that would have been like. We can't conceive of God's self-existent eternality, his being outside of time, because we are, well, for starters, dependent on him, and we're bound to the limits he has put on us. That said, you know, even though the seasons and years are obvious to us, like they have been to every single human culture, there is no necessary way of grouping a year outside of four seasons in 365.25 days. You don't have to have 12 months. You don't. You know, so for example, the Romans used a 10-month calendar. You don't have to have a seven-day week. You don't have to have a week at all. You know, we take the seven-day week as just the way things are because we have been so deeply influenced by the Bible. You know, ancient people thought of time in terms of cycles, as in everything repeats itself over and over again. Why? Because that's how days and seasons and years work. I mean, think about it. Every day works pretty much the same way. There's a rhythm you can depend on. So, for example, while in Egypt as slaves, Jewish people didn't labor six days and rest on the seventh day. They worked every single day without stopping. The idea that, that history is moving somewhere, that it's progressing towards some end or some grand purpose, which is what everyone now assumes, whether they are a believer or not, that belief comes first with Israel and the Old Testament, and it spreads outward to other cultures because of the impact of Christianity. Before this, you know, the common view across cultures was that there is no purpose to history. To even ask that question would be weird. Life is just one cycle after another, and you can still see that reflected in Hinduism and Buddhism today. You know, the concept of being on the right side of history, for example, is a Christian one. Ancient people didn't think like that at all. It's just that these days, 
You know, liberal ideology has hijacked the notion of progress and divorced it from God. And so whatever is the moral flavor of the moment among those with influence and power, that is what is deemed as right. You know, so much of how we live and think about time, and it's just innate to it. We just assume it. You know, even with those who reject the true God, comes directly from the Old Testament and passages like ours today. You know, that said, there's several things to note about the Sabbath in this passage. Uh, So to begin with, verse 10, it begins the section by grouping Israel's time into seven-year periods, where six years the people worked the land, and in that seventh year, they let the land rest. This is an issue of trust, obviously, and it's a continuation of, or it really, it builds upon how Israel was to trust God in the wilderness with his provision of manna and quail. So in the wilderness, and this is, of course, happening as these case laws are being given to them. In the wilderness, the people gathered the food that God provided for them for five days. And on the sixth day, God would provide enough to cover the seventh day, too, so that they would have no need to work or gather on that seventh day. So God provided rest for them. What happened weekly in the wilderness was to prepare them for what they would do in the promised land over the course of generations, over long periods of time. So in the case of six years, in a seventh Sabbath year, God promised, and you can find this in places like Leviticus 25, to provide triple in the sixth year. So the harvest in the sixth year would be enough for that sixth year, as well as the seventh, the next year, the seventh Sabbath year, and also the eighth year after that. That is the beginning of the next cycle of of seven years as they were waiting for the crops to begin to grow again. So like the manna and quail, Israel was to trust that God would provide for his people enough. Get this now. This is crazy to Americans. Enough to take a whole year off from working the land. Whole year. Not a weekend. Not a fortnight. Whole year. Added to this is the creation of Israel's social safety net, where the poor and the animals were free to glean or graze the resting fields and orchards and vineyards in that Sabbath year. There's other opportunities for them to do that in non-Sabbath years too. So this is, when you look at the biblical model, it's so much better than the handout system in our country. You know, in the wilderness, people still had to gather and put forth effort to make use of what God had provided for them. And the same is true here, this this provision for the poor, where they too are are called to gather and glean, it actually preserves their dignity. It still calls them to trust God and to respond to his generosity by gathering what he had provided for them. And it's a, a social safety net based on God's generous abundance and in turn, his people trusting that he will provide for them and then living like it. Now, of course, The system breaks down if the rich refuse to trust God and hoarded their resources or refuse to take uh, the Sabbath year rest. Now, in addition to trusting God, we keep saying this a lot. Sabbath means rest. It means rest. So rest for the land, rest for humans, no matter if they were, say, owners or servants or foreigners, and God even wanted rest for animals. In particular, think of you know, the service animals they would have been using. You know, part of this emphasis on rest is in response to what Israel had just been rescued from in Egypt, where she never knew rest. 
You know, six days of work as opposed to the toil of a slave, right? Six days of work plus a seventh day to rest. Revolutionary, just revolutionary in the ancient world. And in a lot of ways, you know what? It still is. You know, Sabbath rest is also relational. You know, if God took a Sabbath rest and creating the world as his image bearers, we must pattern our lives on his and find our rest in him, not in our own works. You know, Sabbath rest points to, it is a living symbol, it points to eternal rest with God. It is a living, weekly, symbolic ritual of our communion and life in him. So practicing Sabbath is a practice for the life to come, even as it is a tangible demonstration that we are already set apart for that life right now. So to practice Sabbath rest is to have one foot in the age to come and one foot in the current age that's waiting for God's promised redemption. So in other words, when you take Sabbath rest and you actually practice what God commands, you're living for heaven now. That's what's in view. It's why, for example, I look forward to a nap every Sunday afternoon after lunch. If you try calling me at 1.30 today, I'm not answering. I promise I'm not. And actually, I've come to depend on that sleep. You know, believe it or not, it's an act of worship, at least on my part, because I'm taking God seriously that as an adult man, I can really rest in him on the Sabbath. Now, you don't have to take a nap. You don't have to do that for that to be true. But for some of you, it might be a good idea. So in other words, to keep the Sabbath, whether in terms of the weekly Sabbath or the sabbatical year, seventh year of the, or the year of Jubilee, uh, which was the 50th year, which is seven times seven years, which was kicked off by the Day of Atonement in which all debts were forgiven and ancestral lands were returned to their original families, Keeping the Sabbath is one of the most fundamental rituals of the Christian faith and easily one of the most important ways we are shaped to God and declare our faith in him. See, to practice Sabbath is to intentionally live in light of your resurrection from the dead. It's why God commands in verse 13 that Israel was to be intentional about the Sabbath. You know, she, she was to intentionally set this day apart, so which means she had to plan for it. She had to structure her time around it. And part of that Sabbath rest included worshiping God alone. So, I mean, just think of this as an aside. As Christians, are we not called to prepare for our deaths? Are we not being called to prepare for the life to come? in every moment of our lives, living in light of what's coming. Well, that's what we're supposed to do with the Sabbath too, you know? And so when it includes uh, in this little, you know, fragment there, this little statement in, in chapter 23, you know, don't worship other gods too. Don't mention, even mention other gods alone. I mean, that just seems like a, a little quick addendum to what they've been emphasizing of trust and rest, but it's not. It assumes the gathered worship of the true God is part of that Sabbath rest. I mean, after all, it's possible. And people do this all the time, including Christians. It's possible to take a day of rest and give the credit to something other than God. You know, most often for us, you know, to our own work, like, oh, I need to take rest. I've been working so hard. You know, we continue the same practice God commands here, though, you know, clearly we do not uh, practice Sabbath years or, or the year of Jubilee. 
But we continue the same practice God commands. And those Sabbaths, you know, those yearly and, and uh, year of Jubilee, those Sabbaths, like the weekly Sabbath, they actually find their completion and their meaning in Jesus. It's why, you know, in his first public sermon in his hometown, no less, this is Luke chapter four, Jesus declared that God's Jubilee had been fulfilled in him on that very moment. You know, God has not done away with the Sabbath. No, our keeping of the Sabbath both looks back to what Christ fulfilled. I mean, that's why the disciples took up the practice of celebrating the Sabbath on the first day of the week in light of Jesus's resurrection and to what's coming. You know, that great Sabbath, the great resurrection of all creation, when the Lord's favor covers all the earth and sin and death are put away forever and we enjoy permanent, never-ending rest in him. I mean, this is exactly what Romans 8 looks forward to. All of creation groans in birth pains, waiting for the promised redemption that is already here, but not yet here fully. You know, so to keep the Sabbath, it's not just something Christians do. It's a profession of faith. It's a tangible, God-given weekly ritual that shapes you. Whether you realize it or not, it shapes you to trust him in all things. You know, and especially in light of our American refusal to quit working, and it's intended to teach us to intentionally measure time. You know, not as as our post-Christian kind of capitalist, attention-seeking culture uh, seeks time, but no, as God sees time, to define it by him. I mean, just think about that. There is nothing in America encouraging you to Sabbath. Nothing. Entertainment? Yes. Recreation? Yes. Busyness? Yes. Sabbath? No. I mean, American culture, much like how Egypt treated the Jews, is pushing you to seven full days of activity or busyness. And for Christians, it's often pushing us to fill our Saturdays up to the point that Sunday mornings seem like a real struggle. You know, if think about this. If, if getting somewhere by 10 a.m. seems hard, when the other six days, you're up early maybe and out the door, well, come see me. I, you know, I, I bet I can help you through some solutions to what you're doing on Saturday nights. You know, the issue is not the time of the service. I promise it's not. It's what we value more than Sabbath. And it's not just the worship service that's in view either. I mean, we can't rest on Sundays because we have to prepare for the week to come or we need to do something because we can't just sit around or we need to be entertained or we need to be productive. And people do this even with their Christianity. It's, you know, why as your pastor, I will always push us more towards rest than busyness when it comes to the stuff going on at church. I do not want us to take on the rhythms of the world. I just don't. And of course, you know, many churches see that as laziness. We're not doing anything. And you know, I get it. It seemed reckless and irresponsible for Israelites to take a year off from work too. You know, those same churches typically function more like a business offering a product than a sanctuary of God's rest and having you know, worked in churches like that, people get burned out. I would be willing to bet most of you right now are burned out. 
just from the way American life is lived. You know, call me crazy, but I'll take the charge of laziness if it means we don't take on the posture of the world and instead actually worship and rest on the Sabbath. You know, frankly, you know, many Christians just really don't have a Sabbath. They have an hour worship service that breaks up what is otherwise pretty much like any other day of the week. You know, this is why I talk about Sabbath and gossip so often. I mean, like almost every sermon. If you want to live a radically different Christ-shaped life, fight against gossip because it destroys, it destroys communities. But also plan your life around Sabbath and then take it seriously because it will give you rest in the way that maybe you don't have right now. I mean, just doing those two things, I promise they will change you. Okay, so if then Sabbath seems familiar to us, well, the feast days seem altogether foreign, if not really odd to us. And the big three of the Old Testament are mentioned here. These are not the only festivals. Uh, there was others that got added on throughout Israel's history. In fact, there's pretty good indication that Jesus himself uh, celebrated Hanukkah. Uh, you can find that in the book of John. Uh, but the three we mentioned here are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is attached to Passover, and the Feast of Harvest, otherwise known as Pentecost. I'm sure you're familiar with, with that one. It's also known as the Feast of First Fruits. And then the Feast of Ingathering, which is also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, depending on where you are in the Old Testament. So these feasts divided the year roughly in, into thirds, between early spring with Passover, which actually marks the new year for, for Israel, and then they moved to late May and kind of early June with Pentecost, and then moved to the final harvest in the fall with the Feast of Ingathering. And there are several things of interest in this section, and I, I promise I've actually restrained myself. I told the session this morning, I could easily go another 30 minutes well past this. I'm not. You're welcome. But this stuff is so fascinating and is so... Uh, not just symbolic, but it, it teaches you what God is doing through his people to bring about the redemption of the world. So that's a first. I want to answer several questions. So here's the first one. These are feasts, right? This involves real eating. And we will see this again in two weeks with chapter 24 and the feast that uh, Moses and the 70 elders have with God. God confirms his life with his people, you see. He confirms his life with his people through eating, through eating, just as Adam lost table fellowship with God through eating what was held back from him. So Israel, the new Adam, is invited to back to the table with God. So it's why the central ritual instituted by Christ is, guess what? Also a feast. Second, leaven. Leaven plays an incredibly important symbolic role in these feasts. So God commands the people this is with Passover, to get rid of all the leaven in their homes prior to the Passover meal and to eat unleavened bread for the week after as a symbol of how they have been cut loose from the leaven of the world. So the Passover sacrifice made them a new people, atoned for by the blood of the lamb. They were a new creation. The old had gone and the new had come. This is why Passover for example, was celebrated at night and nothing uh, could be left over in the morning. This is the same pattern you find in Genesis 1, for example. 
There was evening and there was morning and new creation. So here it is with Passover. And just as Israel was saved in the Red Sea crossing in the morning, and just as Christ was raised from the dead on the third morning, salvation and new life comes in the morning. It's why death and resurrection, for example, is talked about in the Bible sometimes as falling asleep and waking to new life. So even in the own patterning of your life, every night you die and every morning you are resurrected. It's already built into how you should be thinking about the world. And I I could keep going, really, on how symbolically rich this is, but it's enough to know that Passover with unleavened bread signified and atoned for and resurrected people that God set apart to new life in the land and who in turn enjoyed the fruit of God's generosity. And that's further symbolized in the second and third feasts, which, by the way, enjoyed leavened bread as a symbol of the people now leavened by God. These feasts were, of course, fulfilled in Jesus, and it's why we eat and drink a better Passover lamb, looking to him for a better atonement, even as we await the resurrection of our bodies that will follow in the pattern of his resurrection. Everything about the Old Testament look forward to Christ. It is all fulfilled in him. And it's why, for example, Jesus compared the kingdom of God to new leaven that leavens the whole loaf. We are a people set apart, cut off from the world's leaven in order to be used by God as leaven to bring his rule to bear in this world. So why does God then, let's moving on to another question, why does God require all men to make the trip to the tabernacle three times a year? Deuteronomy 16 actually says, everyone who can attend should attend, but if they can't, that's okay. So it's not just males who are to attend, but even so, God says males should. In fact, you look at Exodus 34, verse 24, God says, listen, I'm gonna protect your lands in the absence of, in your absence when you're gone so that you could attend these feasts. So like the Sabbath, the feast days required trust and preparation for a trip and a willingness to let the land sit idle and unprotected for what could have been weeks at a time, undefended, all that stuff. But even so, why emphasize all males show up? Well, the text doesn't actually say why, but I think we can gather at least two things from the rest of scripture. First, this was a sort of offering. James Jordan argues this, and I think he's right. It was a sort of offering, the offering up of Israel's sons to God, recognizing God's ownership over all things, including the people themselves. And it's reminiscent of Abraham offering Isaac to God. Second, it's clear that the law was often read at these feasts and every Sabbath day for that matter. And it was assumed that men like Adam in the garden should receive this word and lead their families in it. So it's highlighting male leadership at this point and male responsibility. And this is the governing assumption from Genesis 2 all the way through the New Testament. Does that mean women don't need to learn the word too? Of course not. Of course not. Children, no, of course not. No, this is a patterning that goes back to Genesis 2. Well, let's keep going. What's the deal with offering fat? What's the deal with offering fat? As ancient cultures well knew, the richest part of the animal is the fat. 
It's the fat. It's why predatory animals like lions or coyotes will first go for the viscera and the fat of their prey before they ever touch the muscle meat. In fact, there's whole cultures that would just throw the muscle meat, which we tend to prize, to the dogs and eat the viscera and the fat. So in a certain sense, American culture has it exactly backwards, and that's why this seems so weird to us. But the fat was the richest part of the animal. So Israel was to be like Abel, offering the richest part of the animal to God and then feasting on the rest, and he encouraged them to feast on the rest. Notice, too, that God wants his people to eat. This is so important. These are feast days. They would, be, they would have been joyful and rich celebrations, that the fat of the Passover meal was, was not allowed to be left over till morning indicates that Passover was not an ordinary meal and was not to be treated as such. And we rightly treat the Lord's Supper similarly. These are special occasions, special meals, special opportunities for God's people to commune with him. And the Lord's Supper is just like that too. Now, there is nothing magical about what you see happening in the Old Testament in terms of these these really kind of sacramental feasts. Just like there's nothing magical about the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, but it is a sacrament. It is a physical means that God uses to build his people up in faith and love. It's a seal of our union with him. See, God, this happens all the time. God takes ordinary physical things and he uses them for spiritual purposes. It's why we don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. It's why we don't think it's like any other meal. It's why we don't allow, for example, little children to take this meal until they know what they are doing and are able to confess faith in Christ. It's why I always give a warning before we take communion, because as Paul says, you very well may be eating and drinking judgment unto yourself. And at least in the Corinthian church, some people died because of that. So the Lord's Supper should be taken with sobriety, even as we should have joy in that meal too. So like with Israel and the Passover, we should prepare for the sacrament. We should look forward to it with prayer and soul searching. Okay, now let's look at that last verse. What a way to end a scripture reading, by the way. What's the deal with boiling a kid in its mother's milk? It seems so random to us. Not that anyone here I'm assuming, maybe you do, but I don't think anyone here has an affinity for young goats uh, cooked in milk. Even so, the text doesn't say that you cannot boil meat in milk. It specifically says that you can't boil a young kid in its own mother's milk. So the idea is that these feast days, they're celebrating the fullness of life in God. And by eating a baby goat that was cooked in its own mother's milk, it's mixing death and life Together, the milk that nourished that baby goat should not be used to prepare it in its death. This is symbolic, of course, and a teaching tool. And all rituals function like this. I mean, the meaning is taught in the doing. It's why, just go to any second or third grade class, right? It's why most kids hardly know what they are saying when they recite the Pledge of Allegiance at least not until you know they're much older. And by the way, that was me with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. I think the Apostles' Creed actually hit me square between the eyes when I was like 24, right? And I've been saying it every Sunday growing up. No, what shapes you, it's the standing. 
It's the placing your hand over your heart. It's the saying the words together as you give your attention to the flag that really enforces the meaning. And once you finally understand the meaning, it means so much more. So the idea that God is the God of life and will not mingle with death is what stands behind the distinctions, for example, with clean and unclean foods or the teachings on bodily fluids and what have you. So these are all rituals that taught Israel to see all of light all of life in the, in the light of God's presence. Every last aspect of their life was to be lived in light of him. So, okay, I just threw a ton at you, right? From Sabbath to cooking baby goats, right? What are we supposed to make of all this? Well, I think it's good to recognize that we actually need rituals and feast days. And even when people say, I don't need any of that, they still will have them. They'll just create new ones or go with pagan ones. We need to structure our time and our years in light of God and his great love for us. So for example, I love that Advent lasts so long. I love it. I understand why people complain about how it's been hijacked and commercialized and how its meaning has been lost in the wider culture. Even so, I love that we can anticipate the joy of the birth of Christ for over a month. I love how the church is decorated. If you ever have a chance during Advent, when the wreaths and all the greenery are up, just come in the morning sometime when you don't think anybody's here, just walk in and breathe it. Just smell it. It's awesome. It's so good. And I love the candlelit Christmas Eve service. I love hearing Christmas carols everywhere. I love the parties. I love the gift giving. I even love the joy of Peggy Lee's cover of rocking around the Christmas tree. I love it. I love the week between Palm Sunday and Easter. I love how we celebrate the Lord's Supper during that week. And you know what? I've missed celebrating it like that these last two years. And I think it's good you know, to come to worship with lament and silence on Good Friday and to be uncomfortable and think, ah, this is not like my normal life, except that it is for many of you who are going through hard times. I love how loud the organ is on Easter morning. You're reminding us that victory has come in the morning through the resurrection of the king. And if you didn't know, the subwoofers for that organ are right there. And I... On this podium, you can just feel it vibrate. It's awesome. I love it. It's good to structure our time on God's time and to structure our calendar around feasts and celebrations of the life of Christ. And again, you know, if we don't specifically choose to be Christian about our time, something else will define it for us. We will grab hold of feast days and other ways of structuring our time. It's just what humans naturally do. I mean, I think we have to remember, or maybe it's, it's more accurate to say, maybe we need to believe, maybe for the first time, that it's a blessing to be called the Sabbath. It's a blessing. That's certainly how Israel had to see it. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to be called the sons and daughters of God. It is a privilege to come into his house with thanksgiving. It is a privilege that we can find our rest in him and really trust him to let go of the leaven of the world and be leavened by him. You know, so instead of begrudgingly saying, we really should go to church, I guess. 
And I know it can be difficult, and it has been so difficult for many over this last year and a half. No, you've got to be thinking, I get to come. I get to come. My God knows every last thing about me, and he wants me there. And let's, you know, let's put this in perspective. You know, nobody I know says, man, I've got these season tickets, and I've got to go to another Iron Bowl. I'm I'm probably going to have to get up there early. I'm going to have to get parking. Lord, we're going to have to be thinking about stuff a week in advance. Ugh, not another one. No, I mean, people jump at the chance to go and intentionally structure their lives, sometimes months in advance, to get to go to that football game. You get to come into God's house with thanksgiving. You get to call upon his name. You get to participate in eternity, in the future resurrected life right now. You can take a nap this afternoon and feel God's pleasure. Perhaps the words of Hebrew 10 are a fitting way to end the sermon and far better than anything I could ever say. Here's what the author says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, that is the day of the Lord, drawing near. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you have demonstrated well your steadfast love through your Son, in the power of the Spirit. We pray now that you would work in us, that you would use these simple rituals like right now, or like the Lord's Supper, or just simple gathering together of people, that you would use these things to build us up in faith and love so that we might be leavened for the world. Leaven us, we ask, so that we might see your your kingdom come to fruition wherever you want it to happen. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.